I'll do the scripture reading and then get on with the sermon. And while I'm setting up for the scripture reading, uh, just one other announcement and invitation, really. Uh, February 14th, which I realize is Valentine's Day, is also the beginning of Lent, the 40 days of preparation towards the cross, which in the ancient church has begun with what's called the service of ashes, where we take the ashes from the previous year's palms and we put it on the market on the forehead and remind the person that they are dust and to dust they shall return. It's a way that we begin uh, the 40 days, obviously echoes Jesus' 40 days in the desert as he prepared for his ministry, which we're going to read in a moment. And so on February 14th, if you wish to avoid uh, expensive dinners out and roses and all that, uh, you're welcome to join us here at 7 o'clock. We'll be having the service, us, and another church. And we would love for you to come out and experience an Ash Wednesday service. So 7 o'clock on Wednesday, February 14th. Two scripture readings this morning. I know you're used to only one. Both are in your handout, your leaflet. The first from Genesis. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave it to some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And their eyes, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The second reading comes from Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall Worship the Lord your God and, and serve, and only in Him only shall you serve. And He took Jesus to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered Him and said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had entered, had had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's the gospel of Christ. Now, Lord, we pray that you would take these words of scripture, these words of hope, these words that you have written for us, and allow us to see them and hear them and receive them. Would you open our hearts to receive in the depth, to see the depth of the grace that you have for us in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, I'm never too aware of what Todd has told you. Clearly, he didn't tell you that the, uh, that the tasting room theology topic had changed. We are beginning an eight-week series, moving us from now until Easter, moving towards the cross, looking at the questions, why did Jesus die? Why did he die specifically upon a cross? And then from these two questions, they point to really one bigger one. Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus died? Why does it matter that he died on a cross? Why does that matter for you or I specifically and personally? And why does it matter sort of generally and cosmically? Now, these are important questions because if you've ever been asked what it means to be a Christian, there's really only one complete answer to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? The cross. The cross is what it means to be a Christian. But I think before we can ask the question, why the cross, we need to take one step further back. I've just seen someone fly off the back of this before, right? Nothing of anyone barking in particular. I wanted to make sure it was there. I, I want us to take a step further back and ask this question. Why the whole story of Jesus at all? Why the incarnation? Why why didn't Jesus just come as an adult, sort of like the the Greco-Roman myths talked about the gods coming down from Mount Olympus and and they were adults? Why, Why did Jesus need to be born of a peasant girl? Why the scandal of the virgin birth? Why why does he spend three years uh, teaching and preaching and doing miracles? If, If the point of the cross, if the whole point of the cross is to die for our sins, if it's forgiveness and atonement and reconciliation and justice and wrath, then why not just go straight to the cross? Why bother doing years of ministry? And, and on that, why, why die at all? Why was death necessary? And why, as I said, death on a cross? Why crucifixion? Why couldn't Jesus have um, died by stoning, like Stephen was killed, or by beheading? These were options open to the Romans. Why the cross? And once he's dead, why the resurrection? Why was the resurrection necessary? And and finally, as a part of this whole story of Jesus, why the ascension? Which, for the most part, we like to ignore because we can't quite figure out why the ascension, and so we don't even bother asking the question. But why is the ascension part of the story of Jesus? Why, in other words, did the whole Christ event take place? And why did it take place the way it did? Now, this is a very big question. I'm not going to answer the entire thing this morning. You'll be happy to know because some of you want to get to the football game. But this is what we're going to try to be unpacking over the next eight weeks. We're going to try to give some answers to it, though we're mostly going to focus on the question of why the cross. But we're always going to have one eye looking backwards or forwards at these other things. Why the incarnation? Why the the workings of Jesus and his teaching? Why the resurrection? Why the assumption? And our, our hope is that by the end of this, these eight weeks, you'll see a couple of things. The first is this, that you'll be able to see that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is bigger and more complex, a more far-reaching and more glorious thing than perhaps most of us actually realize or can even imagine. And secondly, to begin to think more clearly about why this matters to us today. 
So, to give a quick and utterly incomplete and insufficient answer to the question, why did the whole Christ event take place and why did it take place the way it did? It took place in order to rectify what was broken or failed. In order to set right what was wrong. In order to fix it all. That's why the Christ event took place. But why would God bother doing that? Why, why would God, why, why doesn't God just scrap the whole thing and start over if he sees the world as being this, this horrible, deplorable, broken, sinful place? Or why doesn't he just let it continue to spin on his own and let it be? Why does God, do you think, get involved at all? Why would the Christ event happen? There's really only one ultimate reason for that. Why? Because he, because he loves us. Because love. We and the world and the cosmos were made out of love. It was formed out of pure, holy, triune love. Love is what drives the whole Jesus story. If this were not so, then none of the rest of the story would make sense. So what does the Christ event, the story of Jesus, driven by love, actually do? What does it actually affect? How does the incarnation fix anything? How do parables and miracles and, and, and correct anything that's wrong? What does Jesus dying set right? How does the cross, a symbol of suffering and dehumanization and curse, rectify anything or in any way demonstrate love? What does the resurrection set right that was askew? And how does the ascension have anything to do with any of it? Well, in very broad, brief strokes, I want to cover that right now. The incarnation, that thing that we celebrate from the beginning of December, the beginning of Advent, when these trees first went up, through Christmas and Epiphany, is about the revealing of God to creation in a tangible way. Remember over Christmas we had this idea that we can smell and see and, 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 even, and hear and even touch God. The incarnation is about God revealing himself to us in such a way that we can actually touch him and realize that he is God with us and he is vulnerable. He's not distant and just transcendent, but he is also imminently with us. His three years of making disciples and teaching and preaching and doing the miracles were mostly about revealing the kingdom of God, about what the kingdom of this world was supposed to be like and what someday it will be like. And it also sets the groundwork for what would happen both upon the cross, and we'll see that connection over the next several weeks, but also to lay the foundation for the invitation he extends to us at the ascension. Why the crucifixion? Well, we're going to spend most of our time from now to Easter, but just to say a couple of things about why the cross. The cross is simply just a couple of little things here about rebellion and forgiveness, about enslavement and freedom, about lostness and being found, about captivity and rescue, about sickness and healing, about broken relationship and reconciliation, about death and life, about atonement and substitution and rectifying and justice and judgment and wrath and sacrifice and victory. Did you catch all that? I'm going to give you a quiz in a moment. Simply put... Just as the incarnation is about God being with us, the cross is about God saying, I'm also for you. 
It's about God being for us. It's also not an insignificant thing to note that the cross was the slave's death. Citizens of Rome, people who were worthy and valued, well, they were stoned to death, lucky suckers. But the cross was reserved only for the worthless ones, the slaves. And that ties us back, does it not, to the question of the incarnation. Why is Jesus sent to a foreign land, an enemy-occupied territory, as a poor and powerless slave in many ways? Okay, fine, that's why the cross, but why the resurrection? I think one of the reasons for the resurrection was, had Jesus only died, we probably never would have heard of him. He would just be another misguided Jewish rabbi or zealot to add to the list of thousands who had died upon a cross. But because of his resurrection, we know who he is. And resurrection only works on who? Those who have been dead. You can't resurrect the living. So Jesus had to die, and when he died, he was resurrected. So why the ascension? Why the returning of the Son to his place of glory at the Father's side and with the Holy Spirit? Well, because the ascension marks the beginning of something new. It marks the beginning of a new creation. And this creation is not made by or through the word of God spoken, as in the first creation in Genesis, but the word of God himself. The second creation is made by and through the word of God through his blood, through his suffering, his sacrifice and death, and ultimately through his love. The ascension is God entrusting us, inviting us to participate in the new kingdom that he is now forming and to participate in the ongoing work of the gospel and of the cross today. So that is in broad strokes the big picture of what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks what is behind it, and where we're going to be moving towards. And now that we've taken a step back and looked at the bigger question, why did the whole Christ event take place, and why did it take place as it did, even if it was an insufficient answer for you at this point, I want to return to our first question, why did Jesus die and why on the cross? The purpose this morning is not to give a full answer, but simply to point to some overview or introductory ideas to show perhaps a big picture of what we're going to be zeroing in on in this series. Uh, you should have been in your, uh, when you were given your leaflets, you were probably, or given your handouts, you should have been given, I had it here, a, a piece of paper with notes on it. Um, half of you have a mistake on there, I have to tell you that. Half of you will have numbers 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, um, and half of you will have 1 through 7. The 8 through 14 is because I didn't realize there was a click and copy thing that said continuing numbers. Uh, so if it says 8, you haven't missed a whole bunch. Just pretend it says 1 and you'll be fine. So you can use that to follow along now. If we want to understand the cross, we need also to try to grasp two things that are on either side of the cross. The thing that is on one side of the cross is sin. We have to have an understanding of what sin is. What do we mean when we say the word sin? The other side of the cross is salvation. 
What is salvation? What are we being saved from and for? So we have this, this, this thing, this sin, cross, salvation. Cross is in the middle. And, and the three of these ideas, these concepts, cannot be separated. It's like a great Venn diagram. They're each unique. But there is so much overlap that they cannot rightly be understood without reference to the other. The cross makes no sense unless you know what sin and salvation is. Sin doesn't make sense unless you know what the cross and salvation is. And salvation doesn't make sense unless you know what the sin and the cross is. Got that? We start, though, with the cross. For the cross is the center of it all. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at seven different images or metaphors or motifs of the cross to try to explain what exactly took place on the cross. How did it happen? Why did it happen? What did it affect? Now, there's other images that we could use, but we've, Todd and I have chosen seven, each from Scripture, so we're not just making this up. And each one is going to focus a little bit more maybe on the sin aspect and some a little bit more on the cross aspect and some a bit more on the salvation aspect. But together they will give us a more complete understanding of the cross. Now with this, there are two overarching images that we have of what happens on the cross. And had I been thinking, I would have put a note right at the top of the page. It says, these are the two overarching things. So at the top of your page, you can write these two words. There's two overarching themes or images of the cross that all the others fall under. The first is atonement. The cross is about atonement. Atonement means that at or on the cross, for some defined wrong that was committed by someone, some price of some sort was paid by God in Christ. That some judgment, some wrath, some price, some ransom was paid because of something done wrong by someone else. That's atonement. The other major image that comes from the cross is that of victory. That on the cross, Jesus is victorious over something or someone or some sort of power. So those are the two that should have been on the top of the sheet, but I wasn't paying attention when I made it up. Atonement and victory. Now, which one of these is at play partially depends upon how we're defining sin and how we're defining salvation. So what do we mean by sin? How would you, if someone asked you what sin is, how would you explain it to someone? Well, the first thing to understand about sin is this, and here's your first blanks on your page. The first thing to understand about sin is this, that sin is both individual and it's corporate. We as individuals commit sin. We commit wrong acts. We, we do things inappropriately. But also as a whole, as, the, as a nation, as a church, as a people of God... We also sin. Scripture says, and and Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If that's not enough, Paul also writes this in in Romans chapter 3. He says this, none is righteous. Nope, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Think of the Genesis image. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None is righteous, not even one. 
So I don't know if you can find wiggle room for yourself in that. But Paul seems to be pretty clear. So sin is corporate and it's individual. The second point is this. If we're going to use the word sin, we need to understand exactly what we mean in its context. And scripture gives us two ways of understanding, in a way, two different pictures or understandings of what sin is. The first is the one we usually think of. If you speak of sin in most contexts, people think of what the Old Testament lays out or what was in the mouths of church leaders in the gospel, that sin is some sort of wrongdoing, right? We've all seen the image of the the arrow and the missing of the mark, right? The target's there and you go astray. It's a breaking of the law. Sin is immorality. It is disobedience. It is a wandering from the fold of God, as that great uh, hymn reminds us of. Implied in this understanding of sin is that there is within us a degree of willfulness and intentionality. Even if we're tempted by the evil one, at some level we have a choice about committing this sin. And again, it can be both individual or corporate. In this understanding of sin, the purpose of the cross is primarily that of atonement. Justice needs to be met. A price needs to be paid. A wrong needs to be righted. And that comes through the forgiveness of the cross. Now, the second major category of sin comes primarily from Paul's writings, where while he does see sin as we've just described it, he primarily understands sin in sort of a capital S way. And that's how I've written it on your sheet. Capital S sin is being a power. Sin is external to us. It is the reality of the world in which we live. We live in a sin-filled world. We are enslaved to these powers. We are held captive by them. These powers are an enemy of God and an enemy of humanity. And these power, this power of sin is demonstrated through our smallest sins, through death, and even through the law, which ends up being co-opted by sin. Things which enslave us. And they disempower us. In this type of understanding of sin, we are helpless to overcome it on our own. There's no sense of willfulness or intentionality. It is just a part of what we are and where we live. Here, then, the purpose of the cross is victory. It is a defeating of the powers of darkness and sin and the law and death. It is victory over the devil and over Satan and over evil. Through the cross, we are set free, we are healed, we are released. And again, we're going to be returning to these over the next several weeks, so don't worry if you didn't catch it all, but the point is this. Sin is both individual and corporate, and it is both something that we do or don't do willfully, but it is also a power that holds us captive. So what are the primary images we're going to use over the next several weeks to better understand sin, the cross, and salvation, and why Jesus died on the cross and why it matters today? And here's that next section of your sheet of paper. The first image we're going to look at next week is sin is rebellion. And what we need from Jesus in this image is that Jesus' death on the cross is judgment so that we can be forgiven. The cross is about forgiveness. The Son of Man, we're told, has authority to forgive sins. Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them. So that's the first image we're going to look at. Second is enslavement. The Israelites in Egypt were enslaved. And from this image, the cross then becomes a price paid so that we can be set free from slavery. 
The third image is sin is being lost. It's a, it's a wandering from the fold of God. Here, Christ finds us. He guides us home. The cross becomes his beacon on the hill, calling us home. Jesus says in Luke, I have come to seek and save the lost. Sin is about being held captive. Now, being held captive is different than being enslaved. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but it was held captive in Babylon. And from here, we need to be rescued from this imprisonment. Jesus' first miracles in all of the Gospels are about releasing people from demon captivity. Sin is also brokenness or sickness. So at the cross, we find healing. That's why Jesus does his healing miracles. It points us to what the cross is going to be about. It's going to be about healing those who are sick and broken. Sin is also shattered shalom. It's broken relationships with other people, with ourselves, with nature, and most importantly, with God. That's, that's what we see very clearly happening in the story of, uh, of, of the fall in Genesis. If we had read a little further on, Adam and Eve hide themselves from God because they're afraid of him and afraid of his nakedness, of, of their nakedness. And so it breaks that relationship. And so in this scene, the cross is about bringing reconciliation. Scripture says that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself through the cross. And finally, sin is death. Paul writes in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We hear from the Genesis story that their sin leads to death. And so in the cross, we have victory over death. In death, there is new life. So the cross is about life. So hopefully you can see, just from this very brief overview, that sin and cross and salvation is is bigger and more complex than we often consider it to be but that it is also more powerful and more significant than what we might assume, which is why it rightly sits at the very center of human history. The cross, unlike any other death, redefines the whole of human history across every single culture. It influences everything from education to politics to ethics to to, uh, geography to science to art and beauty, everything in all cultures, go somehow through the cross. It sits at the center of human history. It's interesting that sin and temptation sit right near the beginning of both the creation story, that of Adam and Eve, and the story of Jesus. In both accounts, as we read this morning, sin is portrayed as both a personal and corporate thing, And it is both seen as rebellion, disobeying God's law or word, but it is also about power and captivity from an outside force, the serpent or the devil. Look at some of these words to compare them. You can flip back and forth on your sheet. From Genesis it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Notice how the serpent twists and manipulates. The the, the man and woman have done nothing at this point. This is an external force that is twisting and manipulating God's word. The serpent wants them to begin to doubt God's love for them, his care and provision. 
He wants them to believe that God is somehow holding something back from them. He's being selfish. You cannot eat of any of the trees in the garden? That's awfully restrictive, says the devil, the serpent. The serpent wants them to begin to trust in themselves, their own thinking, their own ideas, their own independence, and not trust God to provide for them what is best. Now flip over the page and note closely how this temptation is echoed in the temptation of Jesus. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. He's saying, Jesus, don't trust and rely on yourself. It's God who led you here, and it's not a good place to be. You don't need God. Flipping back, the serpent in the second temptation says to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent raises doubts about God. Is he so petty that you think he's going to kill you? Do you really think that God means what he says? Of course he's not going to send down a lightning bolt to kill you. Don't be ridiculous. He just made you. The temptation here is to make them think that they cannot trust God or his word, that God is a liar and a manipulator. Again, flipping over, notice the echo of the temptation with Jesus. And Satan took him to to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to them, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Those are both taken from Psalm 91. Test God's word concerning you. Is it real? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Will he save your life? Can he even do that? In his final temptation, the serpent in the garden tries to get the woman to reject and disobey, to be rebellious against God's word. After all, he's already shown God to be petty and not trustworthy. Just look at what he's hiding from you, the serpent says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he tempts that they can become like God, or become gods themselves. All they have to do is reject what God has commanded, walk away, break relationship, be disobedient. And you will become knowers of good and evil, judges, and you will have even more power and more authority over the world and over each other. More than you can ever imagine. More than what God would ever let you have. Notice that Jesus' temptation is the same. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said, to you I will give all this authority, all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. All you have to do is worship me, and it will be yours. Become like God, powerful, judge, the one who sets all the rules, powerful, and authority given to you. The serpent's trick works on the woman, but not on the Son of Man. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate of it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate of it. That tree, that bush that was so small and seemingly insignificant and harmless is now larger than life. They ate. They accepted the word of the deceiver whom they had never met over the word of the Lord their God who they knew intimately, whom they had walked with in the garden and had conversations with, who they ate with, who formed them in life by kissing them. Both sinned and both fell captive to sin. Jesus, on the other hand, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, does not. 
He does not rebel, nor does he fall captivity to sin, the power of sin. And this then sets him up to be the one who can go to the cross and take on all the sin of the world on our behalf and in our stead. That he can atone and he can have victory over the powers. Now how this works and why it works and what its implications are and why it matters, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next eight weeks. But as a way of praying us out of this passage or this sermon, I want to conclude with the last paragraph or so of a book that both Todd and I have been reading by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. The book is called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus. And at the end of her 610 pages talking about the cross, she writes this. Forgiveness is not enough. So if the cross is all about forgiveness, that's not enough. Belief in redemption is not enough. Wishful thinking about the intrinsic goodness of every human being is not enough. Inclusion is not sufficiently inclusive message, nor does it deliver real justice. There are some things, many things, that must be condemned and set right if we are to proclaim a God of both justice and mercy. Only a power independent of this world order can overcome the grip of the enemy by God's purposes for his creation. Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, offers himself to be the condemned and rejected righteous one, giving himself up in full knowledge after Gethsemane of what would happen to him. And in perfect union with his father, he went to Golgotha carrying his own cross upon which he was nailed, despised and rejected by men. At the historical time and place of his inhumane and godless crucifixion, all the demonic powers loose in the world convened in Jerusalem and unleashed their force upon the incarnate Son of God. Derelict, outcast, and God-forsaken, he hung there as a representative of all humanity and suffered condemnation in the place of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. None of this would avail against the world's evil were it not for the righteousness of God. The power of God to make right what has been wrong is what we see by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, there cannot be any serious talk of forgiveness for the worst of the worst, the mass murderers, torturers, and serial killers, or even for the least of the worst, the mild offenses against our common humanity that cause marriages to fail, friendships to end, enterprises to collapse, and silent misery to be common, the common lot of millions. This is what is happening on Golgotha. All the manifold biblical images with their riches, complexity, and depth come together as one to say this. The righteousness of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. The precious blood of the Son of God is the perfect sacrifice for sins. The ransom is paid to deliver the captives. The gates of hell are stomped. The Red Sea is crossed and the enemy drowned. God's judgment has been executed upon sin. The disobedience of Adam is recapitulated in the obedience of Christ. A new creation is coming into being. 
Those who put their trust in Christ are incorporated into his life. The kingdoms of this present evil age are passing away, and the promised kingdom of God is manifest, not in triumphalist crusades, but in the cruciform witness of the church. From within Adam's, our human flesh, the incarnate Son fought with and was victorious over Satan on our behalf and in our place. Only this power, this transcendent victory won by the Son of God, is capable of reorienting the whole of the cosmos into its rightful creator. This is what the righteousness of God has achieved through the cross and the resurrection, is now accomplishing by the power of the Holy Spirit and will complete in the day of Christ Jesus when he comes again. My hope is by giving this overview, I realize it's a bit of a fire hose theology. But hopefully what you come away with, if nothing else, is to go, wow, there's more about the cross and about sin and salvation than I maybe thought. And so over the next seven or eight weeks up till Easter, we're going to unpack that. By way of responding to what we've just heard, to the cross, to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Before Jesus went to Golgotha, before he went to the cross, Jesus met with his disciples and he ate. He had a meal with them. He took bread. And he said a blessing over the bread. He said, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. After they had finished their feast, Jesus took a cup of wine, a cup of salvation, and he said a blessing over it. He said, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit from the vine. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, we pray that these small gifts of ours, this bread and this this wine, would be for us in some way the body and blood of Christ, a welcome to participate in his death and his resurrection, an ability to come before the cross and ask forgiveness and confess our sins, that we would be made right with you, but not just us, but the whole world would be rectified and set right with you. You are now invited to come and participate in this meal.